Hello and welcome to Take My Advice. I'm not using it. My name is Ollie Henderson and in today's episode I'm going to be speaking to the Vice Chairman of Ogilvy UK, Rory Sutherland. If you know Rory, you'll know that the next hour is going to be an entertaining listen. If you don't, he is one of the foremost thinkers in UK advertising and there are very few areas that he doesn't have some interesting ideas and thoughts about. In today's podcast, we cover a huge array of areas, including the future of work, network theory, the idea of returning to the office looking like Market Day in Abergavenny, and more besides. So if you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure you check out my newsletter, Future Work Life. Every week at the moment, I'm reflecting on the previous week's podcast and sharing some ideas about the future of work and life. You can find it on Substack, a link to which will be in the show notes. Also, make sure you subscribe to this podcast if you're enjoying it. And please do share it with anyone that you think would enjoy it too. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Rory Sutherland. So Rory, why did it take a global pandemic to make us realise we could work in another way? It's extraordinary, actually. And I've spoken quite a bit to an economist uh, called Douglas McWilliams, who used to be the chief economist at IBM. And he made the point that quite a lot of new technology is very slow to be adopted because of the network problem. And actually, this is much older than we realise. So the telephone was invented in the 19th century, but I think it was sometime in the late 1950s before 50% of American homes had a phone. And part of the issue was that until you knew a sufficient number of friends who also had a phone, a phone wasn't that much use to you, unless you were super rich, okay? And uh, in the same way, it took um, a series of postal strikes in the 1980s to really get the fax machine going. Because if, if you own the world's only fax machine, it is by definition useless. Mm. Uh, and if there are only two fax machines in the world, it's not very valuable. And then you have a thing which kicks in, which is that the value of a network expands at the square of the number of nodes. Mm. So uh, a lot of um, social technologies or network technologies um, take a very, very long time to reach critical mass. Um, in addition, of course, you just have the. There are a few other factors. I think that video conferencing was missold, in that it was sold as what I call the. Um, it was sold as the poor man's version of air travel, not the rich man's phone call. Hmm. And so, very logically, people went in and said, you know, you can pay for this video conferencing setup with the cost of ten business class flights. And it was a very logical way to sell it to rational people. But it had the unfortunate effect of depositioning it. And the typical company video conferencing room was in a basement, yeah. and it was where you were allowed to go if the company didn't trust you to get on a plane. And so it was rather like the pager, you know, that was what your company gave you if they didn't trust you with a mobile phone. And there are about five other compounding factors. Funnily enough, I met Zoom in 2018. And one of the things I said is, why don't you just create a norm around Zoom Fridays? Because if you get everybody, a lot of people are already working flexibly on Fridays, unofficially and unannounced. And if you get people to understand this thing that you work from home on a Friday and you concentrate all your video calls then, you'll at least reach a critical mass in one day of the week and it might spread to days two, three and four. Yeah. Um, but there's so many reasons behind this. And it's very, very interesting because what interested me was it's a classic case where the technology didn't change in 2020 um, remotely. Um, it was entirely what you might call a psychological solution to a 
problem. And I think, I think, by the way, that's also true of things in many cases like um, green technology, that we've now invested enough in getting reasonably efficient low-cost solar panels. The remaining problem isn't to produce even more efficient panels, it's to get people to put them on the goddamn roof. Yeah, it's the appetite to, appetite to use them. One thing I would really, really wish to see there, by the way, just as a bit of a network theorist, is nobody sells what you might call a halfway house solar solution. Now, caravanners and RV owners are there, okay? Because they, they haven't necessarily solar panel powered their house, but they can see the benefits of having a solar powered caravan or RV or even camping equipment is there. But someone needs to make a solar panel that, and a battery that powers... Um, a kettle and a light in your conservatory or summer house or something like that. Because if you can get people over the first hurdle where they discover the benefit of the technology at a small scale, it's a thing in behavioral science called foot in the door theory. Mm. It's much easier to get them. I mean, I've got, I'll show you this, Alexa, turn the study lights blue. And there you go. Now, <laughs> uh, I will change it back eventually because this is a bit creepy. Alexa, turn the study lights white. Um, now, the reason uh, I have got about 30 or 40 um, Hue devices in my home, but I didn't buy them all at once, spending a thousand quid. I never would have dreamt of it. I discovered it one by one. Yeah. And every time a bulb blew, I thought, well, we might as well get a Hue bulb. And the great problem with solar is it requires you to make this massive gamble, you know, with a huge upfront investment. Now, if you can actually take people stage by stage and create the solar powered conservatory or the solar powered summer house, um, you know, I, I spend quite a lot of time looking at American RV um, videos on YouTube <laughs> because that's how sad I am. But it's very, it's a very, very interesting place to explore a particular kind of tech. Yeah. Um, and obviously you have, you know, the lithium ion battery thing has become very big in RVs. Uh, you don't really, you know, in many cases now your fridge can be purely electric. It can be a domestic fridge because of the advances in battery power rather than previously they had to have often gas powered fridges which were, or, or dual fuel fridges effectively. Okay, right. And so that's an interesting area because, as I say, you always see innovation most interestingly at the extremes, not in the middle. Mm. Yeah, there was a guy I really liked who's on on um, uh, YouTube who's done a solar powered trailer for a Tesla. Now it only cost about two thousand bucks with the inverter and everything else, but if you leave this car in fairly moderate sunlight for two and a half days, I think it is, you more or less charge your car up. Now that occurred to me as okay, it's not a it's not a standalone solution, but. To be honest, you know, there are quite a few days now where I go two and a half days without using the car. Yeah. I'm not sure that's not a marketable product, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, there's a lot a lot in that. I was interested in the idea of status, though, coming back to that point about, particularly around the idea that it was a product which essentially signalled that perhaps you weren't senior enough to, to travel video yeah. conferencing. I think, I think there was another thing which was a mistake, which was a really interesting thing to do with human perception. So one thing that gets me angry, literally, you know, slightly seething is when people go, yeah, but it's not as good as a face to face meeting. And I say, yes, but in the real world, this meeting wouldn't have happened face to face or it would have taken six months to organize or it would have cost six thousand pounds in travel costs. Yeah. Um, and so what we're looking at is we're not looking at the opportunity cost. Because an opportunity cost, this is one of the greatest problems in business, which is costs are really easy to measure and opportunities aren't. Mm. 
And actually, finance people who basically have the power to say no to anything are very, very sceptical about opportunities and very, very laser focused on costs for that reason, because that's how they're bonused. And so what tends to happen, I think, is the opportunity cost of demanding that any transaction in B2B space had to be preceded by a physical meeting, which was just a social norm. It was performative. It was like dressing for dinner in the 19th century. It was just an assumed behavior. What we noticed, we might notice if we did a video call, we noticed the relative cost relative to the physical meeting. We go, it wasn't quite as good. And of course, you couldn't risk, I couldn't risk presenting to a client. Okay, If I was the guy who said, look, we've got a potential new business prospect in Frankfurt. Let's not fly out there. Let's go and present over Zoom. Previously, if I was the guy who proposed that and the Zoom call went wrong, I got all the blame. Okay. And if the flights were delayed, it was British Airways' fault. The second you do anything non-standard or eccentric, the risk of blame is multiplied by 10. And so going with the norm of let's all fly out to Frankfurt and present to Jürgen for one hour and then fly all the way back, despite the fact that it's, you know, hardly beneficial to the environment and incredibly costly in terms of time and money and, and, and also opportunity cost in the sense that you're now out of action for a day and a half. Okay. Um, we didn't see those as costs because they were they we were whereas we saw the slightly inferior video call we perceived as a massive cost but the thing to look at here is the opportunity cost and the discovery i made in 2019 2018 actually i made an interesting because ogilvy took out a zoom account just for ogilvy not wpp very very early and very creditably they said this is good we'll pay for it as god intended rather than we'll try and scrounge something off microsoft for free yeah. uh, which is what it people want to do okay and I discovered something by accident, which is you can't sell over email and you can't sell over the phone, mm-hmm. really, but you can not not doing what we do, but you can sell over Zoom. OK, yeah. And I found it um, extraordinary because another thing, another benefit, which we mustn't forget, OK, is if you agree to meet physically, there is an extraordinary cost if you cancel or rearrange. And so any physical meeting comes with an immense commitment not to cancel. And sometimes the right thing to do is to postpone or cancel. But you're disproportionately reluctant to do that. And um, one of the great things about, you know, had I had to postpone this thing because an, a, a child had been, you know, one of my children had gone missing, okay, um, um, that's the right thing to do, all right? But when you have a physical meeting, the sense of sunk cost obligation is disproportionately high. And so we're reluctant to have those meetings precisely because they involve such an extraordinary immutable level of commitment. Mm. So I think that we got trapped effectively in one of those things where no one ever gets fired for buying IBM and no one ever gets fired for uh, flying to Frankfurt yeah. because that's an established norm of behavior. Yeah. You know, um, uh, and so there are about five forces, all of which um, I think acted as a headwind to the adoption of video calling and the interesting thing about the pandemic and I did tragically rather predict this I met someone from zoom in 2019 and one of the in in, in the summer and one of the the awful things I said knowing the experience of the fax machine is I actually said of course what you really need is a major transport strike or a minor pandemic um I was I always wince when I remember saying that 
but I mean, it, it was, as I said, postal strikes which kicked off the fax machine. But mm. it, that, that also existed in the 19th century. Yeah. When I researched this, I was I said, no, it's rubbish. The fax machine can't have existed in the 19th century. Obviously, it would have been slower and it would have been more expensive consequently. But the fax machine, I had a friend who had a fax machine in the 1970s. Uh, he had two. And he had one in his Los Angeles office and he had one in his London office. And he said, the only use I can remember is sending things, legal contracts between the two offices. Mm. I can't remember ever sending a fax to anybody else. Yeah. And that was the site problem you get with this network effect. And when he was chief economist of IBM, Douglas McWilliams noticed this. He said, look, um, you know, when you sell a chocolate bar, you just need one person to like, like the chocolate bar. And you're kind of out of you're, you're out, you're out of the starting gates. Yeah. With a network technology, tragically, you need 27 people to like it simultaneously before you make any progress. Yeah. So it raises really interesting questions about whether there's a role for government temporary legislation to accelerate the adoption of certain technologies. Um, you know, that actually, you know, it's an interesting question whether, um, I mean, there is an argument that actually temporary how would you describe it? Uh, temporarily, that actually it doesn't only defragilize and improve the resilience of an economy to occasionally take things away so people know how to work without them. Mm. It may actually um, improve and accelerate progress. Yeah. You know, so maybe, I mean, I, I, I raised this just as a, a thought experiment. Maybe we should have a car-free weekend every six weeks. Yeah. Well, it's the idea of constraints, isn't it? Yeah, the temporarily imposed yeah. constraints are probably, might actually be, so to have something available for everything except, maybe that's where Orthodox Judaism gets the idea from, you know, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you have a kind of Sabbath where you don't use something. Yeah. And it then prevents you becoming dependent on it, which is a resilience thing. But it also forces you to experiment with different possibilities. Mm. It, it, it sort of strikes me that the idea that video conferencing didn't progress because of a lack of imagination is equally applicable to so many other areas of work. So I'll take another one. And this is a status thing, I think, as well. The idea that the, the less sleep you get or the harder you work, the longer you work is some sign of status seems bizarre to me. Uh, that, that's actually a problem that's been noticed now during pan, the pandemic thing, mm. because first of all, people transferred, you know, first of all, people took the commuting time they'd saved as a bonus because their diary dated back to pre-COVID, pre-lockdown eras. Then they started working in the time they would have been commuting. And then they started working even longer. Yeah. Now, some people have been shrewd. We have some uh, data from VPN um, companies that shows this that some people have been working earlier and working later, but taking a two hour break in the middle of the day or a three hour break in the middle of the day, yeah. which is probably the right thing to do because you can get a bit of daylight. Yeah. And also, you know, if you're a keen cyclist or whatever it may be, you know, um, cycling in the dark is not is slightly ill-advised, I might argue, you know, it's slightly <laughs> dangerous, not very enjoyable. So that is probably the sensible way for us to respond to this. But um, I think people's, what you might call a mixture of FOMO and presenteeism has caused people to overcompensate here. Yeah. Uh, Unilever has an interesting thing um, where every meeting has to last either 45 minutes or I think it's something really weird. Like it's either got to last 45 minutes or 85 minutes or something like yeah. that. And the whole reason is it prevents back-to-back -back meetings. Yeah. 
being put in. Yeah, we've done that actually. We've done, we've done the reduce half hour meetings to twenty five minutes or reduce one hour meetings to fifty minutes. Meetings. You see, the problem of Zoom five days a week is a bit like the problem of the open plan office five days a week, mm. which is it solves for average monotony. Yeah. And what you need for productivity is actually two extremes, not an average. Yeah. And so one of the one of the things I'm saying with the team is, look, we're all going to agree. My relationship with London in future is going to be like my grandfather's relationship with Abergavenny, which is it's a place you go once a week on market day. But I probably will. Shit, sorry about this. Pause for a second. I probably won't. um, To be absolutely honest. I probably won't even take a laptop into London necessarily because the whole purpose of that day is to be hyper-social. And I'm saying to my team, let's all agree on one day a week and we all come in on that day. You can come in any other day you want, Mm. but we all come in on that day and we go out for a curry afterwards and, as it were, make a day of it and make that day hyper-social. Because one of the things that irritates me about an open plan office is I like sociability and I like seclusion. I don't really like the halfway house between the two. And the open plan office is an attempt to solve for both which solves for neither yeah and don't get me wrong okay i'm the biggest advocate of flexible and remote working on the planet but no not even in my wildest moments did i propose five days a week to the exclusion of anything else and um it has become uh ridiculous uh and zoom's problem has gone from being how do we get people to use this technology to how do we get people to use it less and Mm. better yeah if I want to listen to interesting talks, so I want to meet interesting people, Zoom is arguably better than London is. Because mm. it doesn't re- cost 50 quid and require me to get into a taxi or be in a specific place. And so some of the interesting talks I've been to, a talk on insect epidemiology hosted by Duke University, right? Okay, now imagine me going to the finance director of Ogilvy and saying, can I have a <laughs> business class return to Raleigh, Durham? Because I want to attend this conference on insect epidemiology. <laughs> And so you can attend conferences online and, and they will be hybrid and people, some people will choose to go, yeah. um, and, you know, and some people will choose to either present or attend remotely. And that's much, much better. I mean, if, if you imagine it, OK, a 20 quid talk in London costs a Glaswegian uh, 180 quid to attend. Yeah. Because by the time you paid for a train fare and a hotel stay, you know, that's what it costs. And what, what are the limitations though? Clearly, access to more people, geographical access to these sorts of things is, is possible through Zoom and, and other platforms. But what are the limitations of not meeting face to face or not bumping into people physically? Are there any? You can make Zoom serendipitous because as a result of this podcast, someone will get in touch with me. Mm. Okay. Um, and that's one of the things I said to my colleagues is be a bit more random because the cost of being random, okay. If the barrier to new business is no longer a £20,000 investment in travel and time and place, okay, the gains to exploring random encounters have actually gone up statistically. Yeah. You know, you know, is it worth me flying to San Francisco for three days for a 10% chance of £100,000? No, it's not. Is it worth me spending a few hours on Zoom for a 10% chance of £100,000? Well, unless I value my time at £20,000 an hour or so, which, to be honest, I don't, um, <laughs> OK, then, uh, yes, it's worth exploring that possibility. Yeah. And so we probably need to, you know, one of the things that was a cost, actually, to the requirement that any meeting was physical was that we were disproportionately reluctant to engage in random contact, simply because to turn that contact into anything more valuable 
effectively required, we didn't think of it as such, but effectively required a kind of, you know, four figure sunk cost investment, even within London, it was a 50 quid sunk cost investment yeah. to meet someone. Um, if you look at if you look at it both in terms of cost and opportunity cost. So I'm not sure. I mean, uh, one of the things I notice is the world will probably align more around linguistic lines rather than um, geographical lines. So my contact with Europe has gone down and my contact with India and Australia has gone up a lot. The serendipitous stuff, uh, the, the way I do this is I'd have days dedicated to serendipity where you go into London and you literally talk to your staff, you wander around the office, you actually network slightly furiously, hmm. which is exactly how my grandfather treated Abergavenny. He was a farmer, okay? And on market day, he went in and met as many people as he could and then spent four, you know, the remaining six days on a farm. Yeah. Okay. Actually, to be honest, I think he went into the Conservative Club for a few pints, a little more than that. But... Uh, nonetheless, that, that, that's how market day worked in, a, in, a, in an agrarian economy. You had days of exchange. And, OK, historically, Mono Street in Monmouth, which is where the market took place, in the late 19th century had 25 pubs in a single street. And what those pubs were facilitating was heavy levels of boozing in an age before drink driving restrictions because your horse would take you home. But it was really there for the serendipitous networking. Mm. That was a huge source of information exchange. And um, as a result, you know, I mean, I find myself doing really, really weird things now in terms of promulgating serendipity. Yesterday, I introduced two Australians to each other and said, you guys have to meet because you're both really interested and knowledgeable in the same thing. And they knew of each other's existence, but they'd never met. Right. Okay. Yeah. And to be honest, had I not done that, and had Zoom not existed, they, one of them's in Melbourne, one of them's in Sydney, okay, they probably would have met, but it would have taken eight months, mm. you know, when I'm next in Melbourne, do, you know, I'll try and pop in and see you, okay? And there are an awful lot of things, as Dr. Johnson said about the Giants Causeway in Ireland, he said of it that it's worth seeing, but not worth going to see. <laughs> now, there's a hell of a lot of stuff on the planet, conferences, right? Yeah, will I ever travel to Raleigh Durham to see how ants handle infection? Not a chance, right? You know, so one of the great things is it also helps people get out of their silo. Yeah. Because there's one thing we haven't noticed, okay? You don't need permission because it doesn't cost anything. You don't need permission to host a Zoom call. And that's, a, that's important because, you know, travel, you know, you need a reason to leave the office. And so we tended to focus on those things which were most obviously necessary at the expense of serendipitous encounters. You know, yeah. if I went to a conference, it had to be a marketing conference. You know, if I went to a conference on, you know, digital fucking performance marketing bollocks, right? Everybody would say, yes, Roy, that's fine. You can go to that conference. Mm. But actually, the most interesting conferences I attend are things which are outside my silo. I know exactly what I'm going to hear yeah. at a performance marketing conference. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to hear. Okay, insect epidemiology is slightly stretching the envelope, and that was driven by personal curiosity as much as anything else. But actually, I did learn a few things from that. But I've certainly learned a thing from attending conferences on risk, for instance, mm. which is an area which never gets discussed in the ad industry. We never talk in terms of risk-reward. Uh, we always talk as if all ad campaigns will magically work. Um, and we never talk in risk terms and, and compliance. I went to a compliance. 
compliance conference, which really interested me, because I suddenly realized that compliance was basically advertising in reverse. You know, advertising is how can we get people to do this thing? And compliance is basically the same thing, except how can we get people not to do this thing? And, and so there's a lot of behavioral science in compliance because they yeah. realized that they started off by making compliance a box ticking exercise and it doesn't work. You know, uh, you know, all you do is, well, effectively people lie, game the system. I mean, it actually mm. ends up with lots of perverse, uh, effectively perverse incentives if you do that kind of thing where people learn to cheat the system. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, the way you get, you know, the way you get these things to work is to get them embedded in deeper psychology rather than turning it into a sort of surface bureaucratic exercise. So I learned a huge amount. And so de-silification, and that also happens within the organization. So one of the things some people were saying to me at Perio, um, Perno Rica, sorry, Perno Rica was, uh, they said, you know, now when we have a meeting, there's no constraint to the number of seats. There's no constraint to location. So we ask a guy from finance to pitch up and we ask a guy from kind of operations to pitch up. Yeah. And as a result, we have a better conversation. So no, don't get me wrong. There's a huge downside to permanent Zoom use. I mean, even, even I'm starting to go, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, mm. at this point. Uh, there is a downside to it. But what we mustn't realize is the opportunity cost of the alternative, because that's far high, harder to quantify and it's far less salient. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I I'll give you an example of the Uber map, okay, right? The thing about the Uber map is until we had the Uber map, well, I did, but then I'd spent eight years studying, you know, the fact that certainty was a vital component of human psychological well-being a sense of certainty but until we had the uber map we never realized how irritating it was not knowing when a taxi was going to turn up and that's what i mean by those things which are only uh, this is by the way why creativity is so important in experimentation because there are some things we can only understand in reverse and there are far more good ideas out there that we can post-rationalize than there are good ideas we can pre-rationalize how has our behaviour changed as a result of all of this? Have you noticed certain things that you're doing that you weren't doing before? From an environmental perspective, I have become much more environmentally aware because I'm actually uh, partly in a natural environment. And also because I, I realise, uh, you know, let's be honest, we, you know, if you've been lucky, as I have, to be in that percentage of the population, which includes retirees, people in office jobs, people with some security of employment, who effectively saved money, And the tragedy of this thing is that the rich have saved money and the poor have been badly affected. Okay, so there's a very strong argument for redistribution through multiple means after this is over. Um, uh, But um, because of because of that, um, I've suddenly realized, you know, an awful lot of my uh, expenditure is probably more discretionary than I realized. And some of it is actually done because, you know, working life is a hassle. I, you know, I used to buy shit at airports and it was a kind of L'Oreal purchase because I'm worth it. Mm. You know, I've been through this grueling crap. I deserve a reward to overcome and to cement the value of my effort. And I end up buying something like a Bluetooth enabled weather station at some electronic shop in the airport. And then I come home and go, what the fuck do I buy that for? <laughs> you know, and I, you, you, it, I mean, it's, it's really good in terms of the way in which it's forced us to reappraise consumption. Yeah. Uh, John Quilch gives a very good talk on this. There are kind of four categories of consumption, which is there are essentials, there are treats, now, haagen might be a treat. You know, basic tin food might be an essential. Toilet paper is kind of essential. Then there are postponables and there are expendables. 
And his example is car purchase is postponable. I've got a car. If my car, um, uh, if my car suddenly catches fire, car purchase then becomes an essential. But for the moment, it's mostly postponable. And then there are things like cruise ship trips, which are kind of, you know, I, you know, people will return to cruise ships, but I don't think there's actually what you might call deferred demand in the system. Yeah. And depending on your character, you'll also react. I mean, one trend, if you think about it in modern times, has been turning essentials into treats. So the way I refer to that is that um, when I was a kid, everybody, everybody bought cheap bread so they could afford an expensive television. And now everybody buys a cheap television so they can buy expensive bread, <laughs> you know. So that is one trend, undoubtedly, I think we can say, you know, that's been happening over time. <clears throat> and it's probably been a little bit accelerated during COVID because you go, well, I'm not, I'm not having a meal out. So I'm going to have a takeaway or maybe I'm going to have, I'm going to go to a card and I'm not really going to give a shit how much the onions cost because, you know, they, you know, I, I, I you know, I've turned an onion, which is about as, you know, actually not fair to commodify onions, they're red ones, they're Fidelia ones. But I mean, I've turned an onion into a treat. You yeah. Know. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, those things are shifting. Um, air travel, I think, uh, it'll be really interesting because the market will both return and not return. Uh, so I think air travel will experience all three. It'll experience postponed expenditure. It'll experience, you know, just expenditure, which is just lost, but it returns. But at some level, people may actually, um, uh, you know, certain forms of air travel, I think, you know, Maybe the weekend break or the the day business trip to Frankfurt ain't going to happen with quite the same frequency because it will just seem weird by comparison. You know, having been used to chatting to people. The other thing that may have happened is that we've established networks over Zoom which don't map neatly onto air, air networks. The hubs, they're very hub and spoke. And so, you know, a very high level and important conversation took place. And I've got to get my head around this because I think mentally I go, if you're in New York or the Silicon Valley, you're very important. If you're in London, you're quite important. And if you're in Birmingham, you're a bit less important. Okay, I'll tell a story about this. So, no, I'm chatting to a guy in Bozeman, Montana. I'm going, this is interesting. He lives in Bozeman. What a great guy. You know, he's moved out of New York. But then suddenly realized he's in charge of a multi-billion dollar corporation and i'm kind of going i've got to get my head around this because i deploy you you know the whole thing in the diversity thing about unconscious bias we have unconscious geographical bias like crazy i never talked to any brummies in 2019 right i talk to quite a lot of brummies now and you realize that brummies are great all right yeah i mean obviously they're big brummies are a bit lost on zoom because traditionally when a brummie meets another brummie the first 10 minutes of conversation is discussing the precise combination of roads you notice <laughs> this with brummies <laughs> i didn't want to take the a473 actually if you turn left by the happy eater um but actually so they're obviously brummies are a bit confused by zoom because you don't have that you know it's like dogs sniffing each other's bums you don't have the brummie road conversation um which um proceeds I'll t- one day I'll tell you a really funny story about the Brummy Road conversation. I have got time to tell that. There's actually a Python sketch, the the Minehead by-election. Do you remember this? No. Where the you've got you've got Hitler, what you've got Goebbels and Goering or something staying at a, a B&B <laughs> in Minehead and standing for the local by-election. And then the Brummies arrive from Coventry, actually, technically. And they go, you know, you could have got another 10 feet. Terrible traffic at that junction. You get another 10 feet on the road if you knock down that hospital. And um, but anyway, but but actually, one of the things we pre- undoubtedly where unconscious bias is really strong is geographical unconscious bias. Yeah. 
Because, you know, I'm having a chat. You know, the guy's moved out of New York. It's a huge company. He's not going back to New York either. Our chief executive is staying in Denver. Right. right? Um, and I was talking to people at Coke, and they're hiring people for global roles. And they said, there is no expectation that you move to Atlanta right. in the hire. Now, what you will do, it's worth remembering it's not all bad news for physical space because the social will become hyper-social, as I said, you know, 25 pubs in Mono Street, which were probably half empty six days of the week and absolutely rammed on market day, okay? Now, market day might vary, you know, some people will choose Monday, Tuesday, some people will have two market days, some people will have three market... And by the way, this comes from a really sweet story. Uh, you'll, uh, the reason I thought of London having market day where we all live in, you know. Now, the interesting point about this is it's different in America. If you move out of Twitter in San Francisco and you go to Austin, that's a flight away, okay? Mm. The Americans haven't really got, got trains sussed either. So you can't even take a train from San Antonio to Austin, despite the fact that they're about potentially an hour and a half apart. And they're the seventh and 11th largest cities in the United States, respectively, or possibly in the other order, actually. I mean, there's no, the train between them takes like seven hours and it goes at 35 miles an hour and there's one a day, okay? Now, um, in Britain, if you think about it, um, nearly everybody um, south of Newcastle, I would say, can go to London for the day, okay? Okay, or, you know, for that matter, Londoners can go to nearly every... It's, this isn't like the US, it's very different. And so there are huge swathes of land in which you can live, um, perfectly pleasantly, next to a reasonably sized conurbation, which enables you to treat London as a day trip, as a market day thing. Uh, it, you know, it's fundamentally different in the US. You know, you can't really move out of the Bay Area to, uh, I mean, you know, if you move to the Central Valley, I mean, it's a bloody long way, I and mean, it's incredibly hot, by the way. <laughs> so I've been in the Central Valley in the summer, and you, you know, it's painful. Um, <laughs> But Britain's different because actually the economy now, which used to be London, is sort of Southeast England and environ. Okay. Now, where the story came from, by the way, my grandfather was a doctor in Tredegar and then Krakow. And there was a little boy who lived on the farm. And as a treat, they all went up to Smithfield, the agricultural show. You wouldn't think if you're a farmer, you know, the one day in the year, you go, one day in the decade, you go to London, you might go to a musical, you know. Maybe you'll go and try out, you know, some burlesque. No, farming, okay? I, I love farming because it's a total monoculture, you know. And um, but anyway, what's rather sweet is, all the way travelling up to London, the little kid said to the people who are taking him, so said, Dad, that is, is London, like, bigger than Brecon? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's a lot bigger than Brecon. Is it bigger than Hereford? Uh, yeah, yeah, it really is a lot bigger than Hereford. And when he got to London, he saw all the people in the streets and said, Dad, is it market day? Which I thought was <laughs> an enchanting thing. My, my grandmother told me that. I mean, must be, that must have happened in 1937 or something. <laughs> but um, I always think it's a lovely story. And I like this idea of yeah. London having a market day Definitely, where you coordinate yeah. it. Yeah. A market day solves a coordination problem. But you can imagine it creating a vibrant atmosphere. Right? It would be insane. Imagine it that. would be, be insane. Great. Hey, I mean, seriously. Because the alternative is people just walking in like zombies, isn't it? That's what has always been like. The, the other thing is, if the old fuckers clear out of London, <laughs> free it for the young, because I'm 55, I've done the decent thing. I sold that flat to young people, okay, yeah. for 300 grand, which is now worth a million. They couldn't afford it in 100 years. I want London to be full of young people, mm. right? Get out, you old fuckers, right? Because the people who should be in London are... Essential workers who need to be there because they've got a hospital or they're an ambulance driver or yeah. they're a fireman or something like that. And young people who need it basically as a mating 
yeah, yeah. Now, for me as a 55-year-old, New Yorkers have told me that New York was never more fun. It was grottier, it was edgier, it was more dangerous, right? But it was never more fun than when you had rent controls, which meant that young people could basically stay there mm. and they had a huge disposable income because their rent was fixed. Now, I haven't seen... Now, this sounds a terrible thing to say, OK? I had, I had a very good friend at university who's a brilliant man called Ray Falk, who's one of the biggest influences in my life. Now, he was a mature student at university, and he, he and his brothers had organised the Isle of Wight festivals, right, when they were 25. Uh, yeah. So when they were 25, they were, like, booking Bob Dylan, and they were booking Hendrix, right? And, you know, he'd hung out with, you know, two of the Beatles. I mean, his, his early life had been extraordinary. Now, before I ever met Ray, when I was... Um, he was a total contrarian. Now, I probably owe more to him than almost anybody else. Drayton Bird, a few other people, you know, Randy Hanfeld, and Mike Sim, people I work with, Steve Harrison, etc. But more, I owe more to him than anybody else. Now, I was doing my O-levels, okay, and I was listening to the Jimmy Young show because I had a broken clock radio that would only work on Radio 2. You couldn't change the thing because Radio 2 was the only thing that broadcast after 12 o'clock. You had to listen to Radio 2. And it was a phone-in show with Jimmy Young, and they were talking about litter, and it was you know, literally an hour and a half of people going, I think litter's terrible. I was I was having this picnic, and these people dropped a, you know, um, you know, a... a chocolate wrapper and I went up to them and I told them you're going to take that home you know and it was just an hour and a half of that and the program ended and this I bear in mind I'd never met the guy I never knew I was going to meet him and it ended with Jimmy Young saying by the way there are two opinions on this and Mr Falk rang from Oxford to say that he thought that litter was a really good thing <laughs> because whenever you see litter okay you get excitement you go to New York it's a really exciting place there's crap going on everywhere and there's litter on the streets okay you go to a boring place there's no litter so he's now I would apply the same Ray Falk logic to vomiting I haven't seen anybody vomit in London since the late 90s right on the street I haven't seen a pool of vomit. <laughs> now, okay, right, this is really being weird. I'm not pro-vomit, right? But if the point is that if people are really having a great time, some of them are going to get it wrong and they're going to vomit, mm. okay? Right? Because just out of the law of averages, right? Someone's going to puke. The fact that there's no vomit, either we're just clearing it up incredibly assiduously, which is possible, but the other alternative is actually nobody's having any fun. I don't think London's fun like it was mm -hmm. in the 80s or the 90s. Now, maybe because I'm an old fart, and, you know, I don't want to stand in a barn and go, woo, under the influence of drugs or anything like that, right? Or not frequently. Um, but I, I, I genuinely think that one of the things the young don't realise is London's all about fucking work. Mm. You know, you sit there in a restaurant, there are people talking about the NAS, you know, NASDAQ or something, or, you know. And actually, London used to be about, you know, actually living life. Yeah. And I think it's lost that. It's a load of people doing something after work. But actually, if you've got the old fuckers to move the... Because, look, OK, this is a temporary aberration, OK? When people got rich, they moved to Surrey. That, those are the rules, right? OK, Lennon moved to Surrey. Ringo moved to Surrey, right? Um, and actually, George moved to Surrey, didn't he? In fact, he wrote Here Comes the Sun when he'd escaped to Eric Clapton's house in Surrey because he'd been in an Apple, Apple Corp business meeting talking about bloody royalties and finance. And George Harrison, who's anyway the most interesting of, well, maybe that's unfair, OK, but he's all, oh, fuck this for a game of soldiers, pissed off to see Clapton in Surrey and sat in the garden and wrote Here Comes the Sun, which is possibly the best of the... <laughs> I mean, OK, let's not go there because <laughs> it's killing me. OK, but... Um, but but the incredible thing there, okay. Uh, now Paul didn't, 
he lived with his girlfriend's parents in Richmond Park because he was going out with Jane Escher. But if you know anything about Paul, he's as stingy as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so he was probably just doing that just to save money. Oh, I can bunk up here, right? <laughs> um, but um, uh, but the interesting thing is um, uh, the um, uh, what's going on there is that the idea that it's cool to live in cities for rich people is actually quite a recent aberration. And I think when you make a bit of brass, get out, spend the money on the train, come in on the train, like the old gent in the railway children, you know, it's a perfectly civilised thing to do, and leave London property for people who actually need that location. Mm. And so um, there's a prediction, actually, in one of the newspapers by a guy um, who, again, Douglas McWilliams respects, who says that what we want is actually a slightly younger, edgier, slightly scuzzier London. Um, you know, we want London to be a bit more Berlin, to be absolutely honest. Mm. And that's, by the way, in my interest, because if I'm going in one or two days a week, I don't want to live somewhere scuzzy, but I want a bit of, you know, a bit... You know, when I do go in, I don't want the bloody place to become, you know, and it is it is a big fucking bourgeois, isn't yeah. it, really? Well, that's why so many people have left for Berlin. <laughs> I know loads of young, younger people have moved. And, you know, Margate as well. Mar- Margate, what a glorious world. <laughs> if, if I'd said in 1995 that I was going for the weekend to Margate, I would have been sectioned, right? <laughs> and it's actually, it's cool. Brighton was always for a time cooler yeah. than London. Yeah. There's a really interesting thing you can do with that coastline, he says, owning a small flat in Deal and therefore massively self-interested. But you can turn that into the creative coast because mm. creative people won't move to the countryside, but they'll move to the coast. Yeah. If you want a property tip, okay, if you divide the UK's landmass by its population, everybody gets three quarters of an acre. If you divide the UK coastline by its population, everybody gets three quarters of an inch. And if you take away the places you can't build on because they're national park or whatever, actually beachfront property or lakefront property is a bloody killer investment. Yeah. Okay. Have you you discovered the website window swap? No. Okay. It's a beautiful idea. I think it comes out of India. And you film out of your window for 10 minutes and upload the 4K movie. And then you can simply take over your TV or take over your computer screen with someone else's window from somewhere around the world at random. And what you notice, actually, is you go, most of the urban views are kind of, yeah, house, car, ambulance, siren. I got two people I envy. Malibu, where you've got the sea. There's some bastard in Malibu (laughs) just to make the rest of us feel shit. But also, Australians and Kiwis, their bloody foliage. Shit, I envy that. You know, having those sort of huge ferns and palm fronds outside your window. You lucky bastards. (laughs) You know, that's the really weird thing. You know, I just look, you know, you go through window swap and all the urban views are kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, a sea view is really something else. Or a lakeside view. There are a few in Chicago, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, But no, I mean, Margate, I I absolutely love that, which is the absolute, I suppose it's Shoreditch on Sea in a sense, isn't it? What they've created. Well, it's still affordable, like you say. It's just the areas in London in which you could reasonably live have become fewer and fewer. And I, I, you know, I want to reward up. You know, I, I can't. I'm in advertising. I'm not. I'm not in merchant banking. I cannot pay our young staff and still function mm. an amount of money that makes them appreciably rich in property terms. Okay. Um, oh, okay. Just to give an example, I heard a story recently of someone who is a consultant who admittedly lives alone but they couldn't afford to buy the flat they're currently renting. It's two bedroom flat in Docklands. They said as a consultant, a hospital consultant, now that's someone who should be damn well living in London. Yeah, yeah. I think they are an A&E consultant, right? Yeah. Now, 
you know, I, I did the best service in my life, donating £700,000 of potential gain in my London flat. <laughs> I fucking well didn't do that on purpose, OK? <laughs> but I should be heralded as a great altruist for selling that flat. And actually, in fairness to me, I admittedly thought that at £300,000, its value had probably capped out, yeah. being an idiot, OK? Uh, but what I also thought is, I don't really feel very comfortable being a Rachman here and just renting it to a lot of people. I want someone else to own that flat. And it went to people younger and considerably poorer than us. Okay. Yeah. And they're still there. Yeah. Right. It'll be their turn to pass it on to. But, 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 but nonetheless, I mean, getting those old bastards. Okay. At least move to Fleming Bromley. Right. You know, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you don't, I mean, the other thing is suburbia is quite nice, but it's social death, isn't it, for young people? I, I do have conversations with my younger staff about this, which is to say, actually, to be honest, I can get you, you can buy a two-bedroom flat in Seven Oaks, walking distance from the station, perfectly affordably. The, you know, this, I mean, this is not a shit flat. This is that kind of flat where if I had to live there in retirement, I'd be perfectly content, right? And it's actually next door to a couple of hipster restaurants and the best curry house in town. And, you know, you've got Deliveroo and everything else. And to be honest, your your experience of life, you'd be your journey to work would take no longer than it does from Fulham. OK, but young people just won't do the suburbs. And one theory about that is you can't pull if you live in Bromley. Because right? <laughs> if you say come back to my place in Shoreditch, the person might come because they go, well, if it all turns a bit weird. Right. OK, I can get a taxi home and just make my excuses. Right. If I'm in Bromley. Right. OK. And I, I turn up, come through the door and he's got a massive collection of Nazi memorabilia <laughs> or something. Right. OK. Now what do I do? Right. It's 70 quid to get back home. And I look weird. And so it may be that everybody has to live in Shoreditch in order to pull. Mm. That's conceivable. The entire thing is Darwinian. Well, that's, the, that's the mating theory, isn't it? Exactly. It's yeah. agglomeration for mating purposes. I think that's the, uh, the, only, the only future. No, young people like crowds. I mean, yeah. I don't understand. I, I, to be honest, I never liked crowds, even when I was young. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I accept the fact that young people, and also the infantile middle-aged, like the people who go to Glastonbury, I'm probably insulting half your audience. <laughs> but, but I was regarded as a bit weird for 55-year-olds to go to a crowded place with no toilets, you know, and behave as though they're 20. <laughs> yeah. Am I being ridiculous there, you know? Well, you know, I think it's a weekend of escapism. I mean, that's the thing, yeah. isn't it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean... <laughs> I, I think fighting ageing is a bit, particularly when you have kids, I think fighting ageing is a bit kind of, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, just, re, you know, what's wrong with adaptive preference formation? You know, ad you know, adapt a few of your preferences to suit your conditions. Mm. So I've just, we haven't got very long left. I just want to ask you one question, which, uh, so the, the title of this show is Take My Advice, I'm Not Using It. And it, the basis was that we all often hand out advice and we don't necessarily stick to it. I'm wondering from a behavioural science point of view, why that is? Why, why is it so easy for us to hand out advice? And, and even with the best intentions, we don't stick well, to ourselves. The, the other thing that's weird is we don't really listen to other people's advice mm. very much either. And I don't quite know what's going on. And it may be that it may be that all conversation takes place um, mediated by the prefrontal cortex, which is rational. And that it's that wonderful thing that you can't actually change people's minds with facts, mm. which, you know, things like the Remain campaign learnt very late, okay, and that we haven't evolved really to prioritize facts in our decision-making and our actions. And so um, oblique persuasion works very well in some cases where actually you don't attempt to persuade someone with a rational argument. You just do something which somehow, you know, I mean, I vape 
um, publicly on um, uh, video calls because I'm hoping to normalise the behaviour, you know. But I don't say, you must feel free to vape or anything weird like that. <laughs> um, so a large part of the way in which we decide comes from parts of the brain which aren't connected to the parts of the brain which do the talking or even the thinking. Mm. So this comes to Jonathan Haidt's model of the rider on the elephant, that the rider can nudge the elephant this is the rider being the conscious brain and the elephant being the unconscious brain the rider can nudge the elephant and it can direct its attention here and there a bit but it can't get the elephant to do anything it doesn't want to do you know now the problem is that the rider then becomes deluded and believes that it is in control of the elephant and it's a brilliant analogy and the other great thing that height said is that the conscious part of the brain thinks it's the oval office when in reality it's the press office yeah um so we often also often our advice to be honest is post-rationalized in that you know i probably like i do like living in the country I, i'm not pretending because there is that thing of me you know the lady doth protest too much me thinks which is that when people keep going on and on about something, one possible explanation is they don't really believe it and they're constructing these arguments in order to convince themselves. So there's a very funny Stuart Lee routine about the friends who moved out of London. And, um, you know, it's all about, oh, it's brilliant in the country, Stu. You know, it really means you do. Yeah, there's a horse at the end of our drive. There's a horse. And did I tell you about the horse at the end of our drive? And yeah, you must come and stay. You know, you know we can go out for a restaurant. You know, there's a bella pasta, uh, but you have to book. Right. <laughs> and these people have obviously done this thing, which I really advise you against, which is overcompensate. Bear in mind, I live a mile outside the M25. Right? I haven't gone nutty. Right? I'm a mile off the M25. I can get into London for seven oaks in 25 minutes to London Bridge. Right. So it's Fulham in terms of the timing. I just live in a more rural setting at about a third of the price. Right? Or a tenth of the price, actually, if I wanted to buy this property in Fulham. OK, so what I'm not suggesting, I mean, I might suggest if you're younger, you have a shift at Canterbury. I'm not necessarily suggesting you have a look at, you know, uh, the Isle of Paris or something. Right. Unless you are naturally a recluse. So uh, there are those people who just as I think Londoners practice a huge amount of adaptive preference formation, which is going on and on about how vibrant it is. One of the greatest things is London. And there's the theatre. <laughs> when did you last go to the fucking theatre? <laughs> Well, we nearly went to something in 2017. And actually, coach trips from Rotherham go to the theatre in London more than Londoners do. <laughs> Pro rata, right? Okay. And so you know, there's an element of that, which is we're right to disbelieve people's um, blandishments, because it's often, it, it's often mediated by, first of all, um, oh, you know, essentially that what they're doing is, try, is, is using an argument to you to try and convince themselves of something they're not deep down sure about. Um, and also the reasons they give probably aren't the real reasons. Now, I always mention, I have had some success and it seems to work weirdly. There may be another thing, which is our close friends. We're in, a, we're in actually a friendly rivalrous relationship with our close friends. And there's some interesting research that shows that second order connections have more influence and more value to you than first order connections. And so the way network, so oddly, if I tell, um, let's say, if, if, if you say to one of your friends, Rory Sutherland was going on about Philips air fryers and saying they're brilliant, okay, it might have more influence on your friend's decision to buy an air fryer than if you did it yourself. Okay. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I know that the network effects are slightly counterintuitive mm. in terms of where influence and opportunity actually spreads. And it seems to actually manifest itself 
Um, and, you know, in, in some ways, for example, you may be really wary about giving a mate a job at your company, right? Because A, if he gets turned down, you'll feel embarrassed because it makes you look a bit powerless that you couldn't get him a job. And B, if he does get the job and he's your mate and he then becomes, you know, starts puking in the bin and starting a fight, okay, it reflects on you. Yeah. Whereas a second order connection is a much safer recommendation. Yeah. I mean, they could be, I, this, I'm, by the way, I'm totally riffing on this. There's no science behind this at all. Um, <laughs> I like it, act, I like it. Don't so, act on this advice. I'm just talking about possible plausible post-rationalizations of what may be going on. Yeah. Um, but no, it's, it's really interesting. The fact that facts don't change your mind, um, uh, you know, and that's one of the things the Democrats have always got wrong, is they've always adopted in the US... Um, a kind of, you know, in other words, instead of saying build the wall, they'll say, you know, annual GDP growth attributable to NAFTA is running at a, you know, percent. <laughs> okay, and they expect everybody to punch the punch the air. And uh, of course, if you think about our, one of the things which is complicated is our evolutionary mechanisms for deciding who to trust. Okay, are very old and probably quite good. And so, actually, there's an epistemological problem here, which is, should you place face in a decision which is seemingly irrelevant or a variable which is seemingly irrelevant? Like, I'm not quite comfortable doing with it, business with this guy because he seems a bit shifty. You know, I don't really trust him. Okay. Which is very different to explain in a business context. But on the other hand, the reason we use those things in a consumer context is that we say, actually, we'll give disproportionate weighting to those things the brain is very good at. Now, I'll give you the story I always tell about this. And I don't, I would, I would have loved to have done this experiment. My mum didn't know anything about cars, but she knew a huge amount about people. I mean, she, to an astonishing degree. She was the kind of person, and she'd occasionally say, you know, she could spot someone having an extramarital affair at like 300 years. You know, <laughs> she had that degree of perspicacity in terms of people now if you set five qualified car engineers out to go and buy cars right and they wrote and and, and you set my mum out to buy five cars right the engineer would largely ignore the person who is selling the car and they'd look at the car my mum would use the person selling the car as a proxy for the car yeah and she go, this person seems like a decent chap and he seems the kind of person who'd be reluctant to sell me a car while knowing it was shit Okay. Now, the question I want to know, and I don't know the answer to this, is would the five cars bought by my mum be better than the five cars bought by the engineers? Because the answer to that question is not absolutely clear cut. Because particularly in the medium to long term, people would learn what the engineers were looking at and they game the system. They do all those tricks like putting sawdust in the gearbox. Yeah. Or, you know, for example, one of the great things that you know, a car inspector learns is that if you've clocked the bloody odometer, OK, um, then and yet the brake pedals are hardly worn there's probably something dodgy going on. But then someone could learn to game that system by just buying worn brake pedals and putting appropriately worn brake pedals, to, you know, to fit the odometer. Now, my mum's shiftiness detection indicator would probably still work under those circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. You see? She, she, you know, and she'd look at all kinds of things, you know. I mean, she, I mean, you know, you know what, I mean, someone with a nice garden is probably more likely to look after their car. You know, all that kind of stuff. So I'll give you an example of this, right? You, you would operate this way. And I, this example is in my book. You're going along to look at a car and you're thinking, oh, well, it's an eight-year-old so and so. I'll probably pay five grand for this, right? And you go and have a shifty around the car because it's parked on the street. And you look at the paintwork and look at all the stuff and the condition of the upholstery. And you go, yeah, I reckon I'd pay five grand for that. 
And then you knock on the doorbell to talk to the owner. And in one universe, it's opened by a vicar, okay? Or, or you know, you don't have to believe in God, by the way. You just have to believe that, you know, a vicar is probably... Pre- okay, and the second situation, the door is opened by a guy in his underpants, right? And um, as he opens the door in his underpants, he puts three unwashed milk bottles out on the, you know, on the step, right? <laughs> I used to do political canvassing, and the joke was you could basically tip the, the Tories washed their milk pot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, but um, but the interesting thing there was that that heuristic there is that someone who isn't concerned about their reputation because they'll answer the door in their pants isn't going to be that bothered about selling me a dodgy car. He doesn't mm. give a shit. Yeah. Right? Now, there's a possibility that the vicar isn't a real vicar. There's also the possibility that the guy selling the car is a psychopath who is just brilliantly fucking charming. Okay, so you've also got to be alert to that possibility. You can't just take these things at face value. But nonetheless, my mum would make a pretty good fist of that. She wouldn't buy a car from anybody dodgy. Nice. And so what's certainly true is you you should not totally eradicate emotional components from your decision making. Yeah. Great. Well, look. That was really interesting and uh, wide-ranging, uh, but we've run out of time, so thanks. Sorry about much. that. No, no, not at all. We could talk for, we could talk for hours. So that was my chat with Rory, and it was a very interesting chat. I'm sure you'll agree. I'm going to follow up with uh, a newsletter over the next few days, which you'll be able to check out on Substack. The link will be in the show notes. Next week, you'll be able to listen to an interview I'm doing with Alex Hutchinson. He's the author of a book called Endure which explores the limits of human performance. Until then, please subscribe to the podcast and make sure you share it with anyone you think you'll find it interesting. Have a good week.